Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who do not identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. I made it to Ghana, y'all. It seemed touch and go there for a minute. And not just the stuff I talked about on the podcast. Like literally the day I left, everything was fine. I got in the truck. I had a driver take me to the airport from my parents' house because I had so many big bags. And I thought it was for the best. Like sitting in the car with my parents for an hour going from PG County to Dulles. And my parents having, you know, all the normal trepidation that parents would have about their child moving to the other side of the Atlantic. It would have been emotionally too much for everybody. My parents aren't really very emotional in general. Let me back that up. They don't express emotion in the typical ways that you might expect. They just start asking a bunch of like random questions about shit. Like the day before I left, my mother was like very invested in my healthcare. And if my apartment had a generator, they tried to give me this like travel lantern in case the power went out at my place parent shit right but they would have started that up in the car on the way to the airport when there's really nothing I could do and I was like anybody trying to hear that shit my dad was like I have a truck picking you up that's going to take you to the airport and I was like great that works for me so me and a driver and he's a friend of the family I've known him for years are halfway to the airport we go around the beltway we're in Virginia it starts raining I've only seen rain like that in New Orleans, like big, fat, heavy rain, like on some like Forrest Gump in Vietnam type rain. It starts pouring. And then like you can see the lightning strikes in the distance. Then I get an alert on my phone that Dulles Airport has temporarily closed due to lightning. With an abundance of caution, they've take, they've told all the workers to go indoors. A week ago in D.C., there was a big lightning storm downtown. Some people near the White House, in order to avoid the rain and apparently the lightning, went and took shelter under a tree. These mofos got electrocuted. I shouldn't say mofos. They were people. They were loved. Their family mourns them. These people went under a tree to get out of the rain and then got electrocuted and died. I feel very, very terrible about this. Also, not but, and also, I thought everyone knew not to go under a tree or near anything metal in the middle of a lightning storm. Like if you're in a lightning storm, like you don't even put your umbrella up because the metal in the umbrella attracts the lightning. Was I the only person that was taught this? I don't don't think I learned it in school. I, I think one of my grandmothers probably told me. Nevertheless. So because these three people got electrocuted by the White House... And it was like thundering and lightning every other day in D.C. for like the last week I was there. Every time there's a thunderstorm, D.C. goes almost into like shutdown mode for everything because nobody wants their workers or their people or themselves to be electrocuted. I get it. I get it. I don't want to be in a plane where there's lightning flying all over the place. Like, don't take that risk with my life. I had no issue with the airport closing because of lightning, especially when I could see like big streaks of it going through the sky as we're driving. So my flight is supposed to leave at 645. I I get to the airport. I get through security. I check my bags in pretty easily. I only took four bags, which thank God, even with just those four bags, it was a hassle, like checking them in and getting them out of the airport. But I got through security and then I found this and I found a pizza hut that had a bar. I was getting lit before I got on the plane. My plan was to get on the plane and just go straight to sleep. It's a 10 hour direct flight from IED, Dulles, 
to Ghana, Accra. So I got lit. Like I had like the big glass of red wine. And then as soon as I finished, I got an alert that was like, oh, your flight's delayed. And I was like, oh, okay, we're delayed by 45 minutes. The bar had just yelled last call. And I was like, before you go, I got, my, I got another glass of wine in. And then it just kept getting delayed. Like every 30 minutes, they would just re-delay it. And they'd be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But the flight is delayed. The flight is delayed. The flight is delayed. The airport is closed again. The lightning just would not stop. So finally, around like 9.30, I got on the plane. It was supposed to leave at 9.45. And then at like 9.50, they gave another update that it wasn't leaving until 10.10. And then we finally took off and it was fine. There was turbulence, but I was laying down. Turbulence feels much different when you're laying down as opposed to like sitting up. You don't feel like you're on a roller coaster. It actually feels like a more exaggerated version of an earthquake in L.A. But I got to Ghana, obviously. I landed safely. Uh, my landlady, which it feels so weird calling her that because she's like, I don't know. I think she's probably like five years younger than me. Real sweet woman. She has a truck. So she picked me up from the airport and all my stuff fit in her truck. And then she took me around yesterday to help me pull the apartment together. So just like really basic things. Like I brought rugs, I brought towels. I was supposed to bring sheets for the beds, but the measurements for Ghana-sized beds are in are, are UK as opposed to American. And like trying to find sheets that fit the bed, just, it was an ordeal. So because I'd asked her about sheets, she'd stripped the beds. So when I got here, there was like, there was nothing on the beds. It was just a mattress. So we went to a store to get bedding because I just, I wanted my own bedding. I think the sheets that she had on the bed were navy. I only sleep on white sheets. I think the sheets at my mom's house are beige. I let them rock because they're high thread count. But in general, I really only like sleeping on white sheets. It's like a personal tick. So I had to go get sheets and pillow covers, duvet covers, all of that. Wine glasses because I remember I needed those from before. I got really cute wine glasses. They got like a little gold rim. Hangers because I bought exactly 30 dresses. Then we went to the grocery store and I just got basics just so I could have breakfast this morning. Like I just needed cheese and eggs and juice and water. Like I can literally live, because I did in LA, off rice, salmon, mushrooms, and avocados, pears, as they call them here. I can live off that forever. Uh, but they didn't have avocados at the store. The grocery stores are different. So like you can get your basics at a grocery store, but if you want your like your fresh vegetables, you get them from... A market, there's tons of markets. The side of the road also counts as a market. Like there's people selling fresh fruit and fresh vegetables like everywhere. And then you go to a specific place to get your meat. Like there's meat in the grocery store, but that's not good meat. There's fish in the grocery store, but that's not good fish. You go to the fish market to get your good fish. And I was like, where's the fish market? And she was like, by the water. <laughs> there's an entire fishing village. It's not necessarily in walking distance, but it's like 10 minutes drive. She's like, you go there to get your fish. Like, that's, that's fish fresh out the ocean. If you want fish that's not fresh, by which she meant fish that was caught that morning that the fish market workers had gone to pick up and had brought to their store and they cleaned the fish and gutted the fish and displayed the fish so the fish was like hours old as opposed to minutes. I am from Maryland. We are, like, we are known for our seafood. People don't discuss the age of fish in hours. But this is not Maryland. This is the other side of the Atlantic. My mother, before I left home, did teach me how to, to cook a fish with the head on it. She didn't teach me how to gut a fish. And she was like, anywhere you get a fish, they, they will know how to gut it. Just tell them you need it gutted. And then she taught me how to scale a fish and then cut it up and season it. 
So if nothing else, I know how to make a fish now. More importantly, I know how to like order food so I won't starve while I'm here. But so far, so good. Like I've literally been in Ghana for all of 36 hours at the time I'm recording. I don't feel like I've moved. I'm staying at a place that I stayed at when I was here in January. I stayed at a bunch of different places trying to find an apartment for when I moved. But I just feel like I'm on an extended vacation. It really hasn't hit me that like you moved your black ass like across the Atlantic. I mean, it hits me in weird moments. This morning, one of my friends who lives here, she saw me post on Instagram that I was here. I didn't hit up my friends who live here yet because I was trying to like pull my life together. Like I was up till 5 a.m. unpacking my suitcases and then making a list of the things that I need to turn my apartment from, from a house into a home. I just want some touches of my own. But I posted that I had arrived safely just as a general APB to everyone wondering. We could stop the speculation. Like, is she going? Is she not going? She went. I'm here. But my friend hit me up and, um, gosh, I'm starting to get teary. Um, and I cried when she said it. It was the sweetest note. I'm pulling up my WhatsApp to read it directly. She said, hey, sis, Aquaba, welcome home as home, as living space, as shelter, as haven. It's been 500 years. I have moments where I can be very deep about things and, and find, you know, I don't know, depth. That wasn't a very deep thing to say, but stay with me. But the reason I moved to Ghana isn't for a connection to ancestors or to history or to blackness or anything like that. I went to all white schools all my life, but I've always lived around black people. PG County, where I grew up, is black as fuck. At one time, it was the most affluent area for black people in the nation. And then once I hit like 16 and got a car, like my whole social life was in D.C., which was Chocolate City. I don't feel a lack of connection to blackness. Like my mama from Detroit and my dad is from Mississippi. That's just black, black, like culturally just black as fuck. Black American, correction. So in terms of like moving to Africa, moving to Ghana, it wasn't to connect with blackness. Not being harassed by police just because I'm black, that's probably the extent of where the I moved here for blackness thing goes. I, I appreciate when we're trying to decide where to go out at night, the decision is not based on whether it's black night or white night at a venue, but here it's based on age, what kind of music you want to listen to, and like just the energy of the crowd. Do you want a complete turn up or do you want something that's like halfway between like a club and a lounge? Or what kind of decor you want? Do you want like an actual club or do you want to, you know, be down by the beach and so you're clubbing and you can like hear the ocean and feel the breeze in your hair? Shit like that. When I'm here, I don't feel black per se because everybody's black. I think the foremost way that I define myself in America, like I'm black and then I'm a woman. Here, like everybody's black. So to go around announcing you're black means nothing. I mean, black is always beautiful and black lives always matter and black is special. But in context, being black is, it's, it's like being alive. What, what do you want me to take from that? My identity here is not black. My identity here is American which is a total mindfuck, because I think we talked about this in a previous episode. 
in general, black people in America don't define themselves as American. People who run around defining themselves as American tend to be like the MAGA people. That's some, that's some real like fringe Republican shit where they're like, we're Americans, we're Americans, we're Americans. Black people don't really do that shit at home. And in here, it's just like, oh, who's that? Oh, the American. Yes, technically. But also, yes, I've never felt more American than when I'm in Africa. A lot of black culture is, I don't know if derived is the right word. Not, let's not say derived. Let's say lots of black culture in America is influenced, kept, preserved, preserved from West African culture when our ancestors were literally put on ships and, and taken across the Atlantic. It shows up in the food. It shows up in the dance. It shows up in the culture in many ways, the names of things. Like I wrote on Instagram, my first dear mom, after I got here, I was talking about how like avocados here are called pears. And then lots of uh, Caribbean readers wrote in and they were like, oh my God, we call them pears too. They're like, did we get that from West Africa? You did. But overwhelmingly, culturally, I'm an American. There's bits and pieces of West Africa, Ghana specifically, that I can see in my culture, my taste buds specifically, dancing on the two and four, the melanin, that that I have left. But overall, like I would say like 90% of me is staunch American. I don't know the details of the culture here. I don't know the language. I don't know the popular songs. I don't know who Ghana's version of Luther Vandross is. Um, I don't know the names of the, of the popular pastors. Like that's culture. And I don't know what those things are. So I feel very, very, very American, especially, especially with the language barrier. English, it's the language of business. So nearly everyone I encounter speaks fluent English, British English, which is very different than American English. There's certain words that I use that people are like, huh? Last time I was here, I was, I was getting my hair braided and I talked about taking a trip. The woman was like, a trip, a trip. And then somebody else had to like interpret and tree. And she was like, oh, a holiday. And I was like, yes, a holiday. Gungan people speak, speak tree or fanti amongst each other, and they speak English to me. There's just a lot lost in translation. It's part of the reason that I don't feel African or West African or Ghanaian when I'm here. I feel very much American. Like there's just basic shit that makes up a culture that I have no clue about. I think after the first time I visited Africa, the first trip was to South Africa, 2011, I think, me and my, I think he was my fiance at the time. And we showed up calling ourselves African-American. And by the time we got back, he was Jamaican and I was American. Like I generally don't refer to myself as African-American unless it's in some form of formal writing. Otherwise, I just be like, I'm black. That's what I say in America. Here, I'm just American. But I say all that to say, my friend sent me this note about welcome back. It's been 500 years. And the magnitude of this move, and I've thought about it before, it just didn't hit me the same way that it did today, probably because like I just moved. But the idea that somewhere in my ancestry, on both sides, my ancestors were captured from somewhere in Africa and taken to America. My dad's grandfather, so like my great grandfather, was born into slavery. And people be like, oh my God, slavery was so long ago. Not really. Like my dad's grandfather. That's crazy to me. My dad grew up in Mississippi, but he could trace us back to North Carolina and then the trail ends. 
my mom, her father grew up, was it Macon, Georgia? My grandfather was born in 1920, 21, somewhere in there. A black man born in 1920 in, in Dust Rose, Macon, Georgia. A hypothetical guess will lead you back to a plantation no more than two generations back. But the weight of 500 years ago, your family was interrupted and taken to America. And all these years later, you go back to Africa. I'm not sure where in Africa. I just know my people are from the damn continent and I'm on it now. Like it took five centuries. But one of us made it back. There's a, um, a magnitude to that that I'm still not able to fully process. I get it on an emotional, visceral level, but to put it into words, it's just not there for me yet. My pastor at the church that I grew up in, Vermont Avenue in D.C., um, Reverend Wheeler, when he would want to, to describe and he didn't have the words for what he wanted to say, he would just call it, if it was positive, a great something. And that's kind of what it feels like. I, I know that I've done a great something. You know what it feels like? If I have like the third glass of Prosecco and I think real hard about it, it feels like living in a modern day roots. Maybe not the story that Alex Haley told, but like an epilogue to it of sorts. Whereas Alex Haley traced his family history back to a village in Africa. It's like you could trace your history back to Africa and you can just go and create a full circle narrative of your family story. There's power in that. I've been to Ghana a bunch of times. This is, this is probably the fifth time that I've been here. And every time I come, I stay a little longer. Like it started with like, oh, I'm here for like eight days. And then it was two weeks. And then it was four weeks. <laughs> and then it was four or five weeks. After the first time, I kept extending my trip because I just didn't want to go home because I really like it here. But in the familiarity of being here so many times, I think sometimes I forget about what Ghana means to Americans, especially just because I got comfortable. You know, when I come visit now, I don't go to the, the slave dungeons every trip because of, of the heaviness of it. Um, and I've seen it before. And I've gone four times, I think. Three to Cape Castle, once to Elmina. And the last time I was at Elmina, I was like, the energy here is just so fucking death. It's just death lingers. It's, I imagine what it would be like for a Jewish person to go visit the site of a concentration camp in Germany. It's too much. And even on the fourth visit, it's like, I, I know what I'm walking into. Death, rape, other forms of brutality, a loss that is unfathomable. The part that always hits me the hardest, um, the dungeons, of course, but also the door of no return. At Cape Coast, it's a really big door, like a Game of Thrones type big door. And above the door, they have a sign that says the door of no return. But it's the door that our ancestors walked through to take them to ships that took them away from their home, never to be seen again. And even as an American just visiting the castle, the idea that your ancestors were taken and never came home, but you made it back, it hits you. Um, it hits different. Even just thinking about it, 
now that I've moved here, it hits. I don't have the words just yet, but it hits. The night before I left, my dad was like sitting on the bench in his room and I was standing in the doorway. And this is not where we usually have our like more in-depth conversations. He's usually in his lazy boy in the living room and I'm standing in the doorway there. But he was telling me that, that I'm going to Africa. And he said, you know, you're gonna, it's going to be big for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what, like, what do you envision? Because people keep saying some version of that to me. And I'm like, please tell me, enlighten me. Because I've got, I'm going to do these trips. Me and Davida are working out tour dates. We're still working on it. People have started emailing me, like, where can we register? Where's the wait list? Like, how do we do it? Give us a second. We were only planning to do one trip, and now we've got two. And now we're doing trips for 2023 and 2024. This was not on the bingo card. Figuring out the back-end logistics and, and just running it as a business is going to take a second. So, but we're on it. But I know I'm going to do these trips. I'm going to write a book. I asked on an earlier episode, you know, what should I write a book about? And universally, everybody was like, either do the, do the Vivian book. Weren't you supposed to be writing that already? Which, yes. And do a Dear Mom book for Ghana. My agent was like, well, people get it like outside of, you know, like your core readership. Like, will they will they get the dear mom thing? And I was like, I don't know. But so far, my readers have been pretty spot on with like everything that I should do. Demetria, you should start a podcast. Demetria, you should write a book. Demetria, you should write another book. Nobody told me to do that damn reality show, though. That maybe should have been a sign. Nobody told me to quit my job at Essence, though. But that actually worked out in my favor. There's the, the TV project that I'm working on. But I feel like there's got to be something bigger than that. I told you about the conversation with my cousin, and she was like, you don't think, you know, taking a bunch of black people back to Africa is big enough? I recognize that that's big, but I was like, still, bigger. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. But I asked my dad. I was like, you've got this vision, so share with me, you know, what the vision is. And he was like, I don't know. I just, I just think it's big. He kind of scared me that, that last conversation. Like, he was very, like... I just want you to be happy and take care of yourself. And I had to ask him, I was like, is this goodbye? Like, are you going to be here when I get back? And he was like, well, Demetri, I'm 81. And I was like, I mean, yeah, but you're in good health. And he was like, well, this age, things can take a turn. And I was like, I don't, I don't like this conversation. Please stop. I mean, I guess it's realistic, but still like before I left, he was talking to me about the social, not the social security. um, What's the thing at the bank, the bank, the safe deposit box. And then codes for this, wills and, and life insurance and all sorts of stuff. And I was like, I, I can't process this right now. And he also told me, he was like, don't come back unless it's bad. And I was like, what, what are you saying to me? And he was like, I want you to live your life. Like, oh gosh, here we go. Here we go with the tears. He was like, I've, I've lived my life and I, I want you to live yours. Unless it's bad, don't come home. You can't say that to your kid. I'm an only child too. This is literally the night before I left. Like my bags are packed and weighed and waiting in the foyer to be taken out and taken to Dulles with me. Um, Like you can't say shit like this. But he did. I'm telling y'all all all this because I want people to know what it's like to take a gigantic leap. The pictures and stories that I will tell over the next year or two or three will probably be mind-blowing. I've put together a travel itinerary a list of of places I want to go and things that I want to do. Just the concept of it blows my mind. I have researched and studied and Googled and Pinterest and scrolled and searched hashtags. 
I have done my due diligence to make this experience the best possible life that I can imagine. Like, what is the dream? Like, you done moved all the way to fucking Africa. What is the dream? Live it. But there's another side to the pretty pictures and the videos and, and fulfilling the dreams of my 20-something self. I'm giving up a lot. I'm gaining a lot, for sure. There is a sense of accomplishment. I've mentioned my 20-year-old self a couple times on social media when I talk about big decisions that I make for my life. I think about what would I advise her. I think about what her dreams and ambitions were before things like life got in the way, complicated relationships, bills, self-esteem, other folks' opinions, community ties, friendship ties, all things that factor into the decisions that you make for your life. But I try to do her justice and do her proud, uh, mostly because I really liked that version of me. She was fearless. I don't think she knew enough to be scared, but I really liked her and I like honoring her, her wishes and desires. Most of them were actually good sense, surprisingly enough. Um, but I feel like after a period of derailment, with the clarity of hindsight, I think for a good five years, I was just really off track of who I am at my core. And I feel now like I'm back on track. If you've ever had whew, the misfortune of either nuke bombing your life or having it nuke bomb for you in, in the form of like losing your job or uh, a major death or a health scare. Those are things that could very quickly set a life that's in order, like set them off spinning through really through no fault of your own, through no fault of your own. But the spin out um, and, and the mess that your life becomes is all the same. But really just for me hitting rock bottom and then the idea that I can go from, from where I was in July 2017 when I left New York. I always say when I left New York, but it's a euphemism for, for when I left my ex-husband. Um, but to go from where I was then, I was so bad off. Where I was scared to be alone with myself because I knew I wasn't like mentally in a good place. But to go from that to five years later, five years, one month, and one day, from my life being completely derailed to this being probably the biggest decision I've ever made, I'm proud of myself. There's, um, God, I can't remember what Nas song it was. It was Nas, Jay-Z, and DJ Khaled. And Nas's verse was amazing, but the end of it, he says, I like who I've become. That's how I feel. I like who I've become. I'm crying, but I'm trying not to have like a full breakdown. I swear I've cried off and on so much in the last 36 hours. I don't think I've cried like this since the damn divorce. But it's not sad tears. It's um, nervous. I'm not scared. There's just um, this vast unknown laid out before me. And I don't know what it holds. I know that there's a lot of great expectations of me on which, just so we're clear, I give two fucks about what anybody expects of me, good, bad, or indifferent. Like, I'm not here to break a chain or inspire anyone or an example or a tour guide. Short of the trips I'm doing, I'm fine being a tour guide in that capacity. But like, I'm not here to 
to prove anything or set anyone free or inspire anyone. I'm just here. And I'm really happy to be here. I'm, I'm mostly giddy about it, but I also feel like I walked away from a lot and I haven't quite made peace with that yet. Professionally, I'm not so much worried about that. Like even before I left, companies that I work with would have been like, okay, so when do you go? And like, you're, you're still working, right? Like, you know, you have internet access and, and TV and you can like review shows and promote films and, and all of that. Like you still good, right? And I was like, I'm still good. I have an apartment with a generator. The power doesn't go out. Like, we good. But, like, personally, I just wonder about a lot. Before I got on a plane, I was talking to him when I was at the airport. And it's just a very bizarre thing to say. And he, he was really sweet about it because he, like, knew I was in, like, an emotionally, like, fragile place. But I asked him, I said, please don't forget about me. I mean, I've known this man forever in a freaking day. He's never forgotten about me in like two decades. There's no reasonable expectation that I would get on a plane and go to a place where I still have FaceTime and Duo and, and WhatsApp and 50 million ways of being able to communicate very easily that he would forget about me. It doesn't make any sense. It's just like, I just feel very, very close to him in a way that I haven't in, I don't know, probably all the years that we've been knowing each other. It's the situation and communication level and emotional maturity, emotional vulnerability that I always wanted us to have. It's like it finally fell into place. And then I got on a plane and went to Africa. So I don't know what happens with us um, going forward. And that's really scary for me. And the only times that I've cried since I've been here, I, um, I got off this 10-hour flight and I land in Accra. I'm standing outside waiting for my friend to pick me, pick me up. Him had tried to call me because he knew my plane was supposed to land. My phone was messed up. And so I got an alert that there was a voicemail. And he left me this really amazing message. And I was standing outside and I just started crying. I intrinsically know that I've walked into something amazing. And this experience in Africa will be life-changing. I don't know how long I'll be here. I have a five-year visa. I know I'm walking into something that's just amazing. If nothing else, it just expands me. It gives me amazing life experiences and context. It, it assures that whenever, wherever my deathbed will be, at least I have one less regret about how I lived my life. But I'm worried. Ah, the quiet part I don't say out loud. I know I won't regret moving to Africa. I hope I don't regret leaving him.